couple of weeks, we are going to be going, uh, it's been six years, um, so there's been some requests, I prayed for it, I thought about going next into uh, 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 the book of Acts, uh, but Chuck in the men's ministry has started doing that, and so I kind of took that as a key to maybe not do the book of Acts, and, and the other book that was on the, the horizon that the Lord was kind of prompting and people were kind of speaking about was the book of Revelation. So we're going to go back into the book of Revelation starting uh, in a few weeks once we finish the book of Luke and to go verse by verse through that. Uh, one of the cool things about studying out the book of Revelation as it is a, a book of modern day prophecy, so to speak, um, is that we'll be able to look at some, some prophecy that uh, has been recently fulfilled, uh, is being fulfilled uh, before our very eyes today. And uh, again, just look at what uh, the promises of the Lord's return in, in our lifetime, I think. So uh, if you want to read ahead, you can, uh, book of Revelation. So this morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 22, picking back up in verse 31. I want to pray for our time this morning and also uh, as we pray for the other churches in our community. Up on the list this week is the Catalyst Church, and I'm Pastor Ryan McBride is a pastor there. Uh, and then his associate, his associate and youth pastor, his name is Justin. So let's pray for that church, our brothers and sisters there, and for that pastoral team. If you guys bow your heads with me. Lord, as we come to you this morning to uh, study your word, Lord, we want to we proclaim and confess that we believe it to be true. Lord, we believe that your word has the power to change our lives, our, our hearts, our minds, uh, to, to renew in us, God, um, uh, you and your will for us and, and to strengthen us in the inner man, uh, Lord, that uh, we would even hide your word in us so that we may not sin against you. And I pray, Lord, that we would be transformed, that you would teach us. The simplicity of your word would be f- brought forth, Lord, because there's power in your word, not in, not in my word, not in my thoughts, not in my opinions, but in your word. And so, Lord, I pray you would uh, teach us this morning by your Spirit, that you would teach us the truth of your Word, that we may have a deeper knowledge of you and an understanding, God, of, of what you've left us here for and, and how to go about that. And I pray, Lord, as we do that, then we would, we would be strengthened by your Spirit to do so. We pray for our brothers and sisters at the Catalyst Church, Lord, for Ryan and for Justin. Um, we pray, Lord, as they and the other leaders there minister to those who come this morning to hear your word be taught. I also pray that your word would be taught there, that people would come to know you, uh, lives would be changed. Lord, that you would unite the Christian believers in this community for the work that you've called us to. Lord, that we would not be separated or fractured, Lord, but that we'd have unity in you. Lord, that we as Livingstone Calvary Chapel, that we would have unity in you and once again proclaim and, and allow you, Lord, to take that place in our lives and in our church as the head. Father, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 31, we'll read on down to verse 38 and we'll kind of take a break there. In verse 31, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith shall not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am 
I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And then he said, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? And so they said, nothing. And then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Verse 37, for I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So it's been, it's been several weeks. We kind of ended like in the middle of a chapter um, when other people started teaching for me while I was gone. And, and now we pick back up in the middle of this chapter and the story continues. And when we started this chapter, I pointed out that, that prior uh, to the events leading up to where we're at now, about six months prior to these events, um, Jesus had asked his disciples this question saying, who do you say that I am? And we kind of ended you know, that, the, the, we kind of ended our study and, and, and went through um, uh, the first 30 verses of this chapter with that same question in mind, who, who do you say that I am? And, and that, that question has relevance again today uh, as we study through the rest of this chapter, and I think it has relevance in our, in our lives overall, day-to-day basis, uh, because we're called to grow in our knowledge and the understanding of the Lord Jesus daily. It's a relationship that we've been called into um, in this, this, this faith that we profess to have in him. And we know that with, that with that question being asked, that Peter had answered and he said this, he said, you are the son of the living God. And with that, that proclamation, with that declaration of truth, Jesus began to prepare his disciples for what would happen when they reached Jerusalem and, and he told them from that point on over and over and over again that he was going to be betrayed, that he was going to be arrested and crucified, and then three days later, uh, rise back to life. And Jesus had told them these things uh, because even though they had correctly declared him to be the son of God, that they had proclaimed that truth, really Peter speaking for the whole, but all of them together, that they still, even though they had proclaimed Jesus to be the Son of the living God, acknowledged this, accepted this, were moving forward in faith with this truth. The reason why Jesus was speaking to him these other truths about him being betrayed, arrested, and crucified, and then resurrected back to life is because at that time, and even what we read here still now, is that Jesus' disciples had many misplaced ideas many misplaced hopes and expectations about who he was at this point and exactly what he had come to do. And even though Jesus had spent much time preparing his disciples for what was going to come, we should take note of the fact that he continued to lead them and he continued to care for them, even though all of these things which Jesus said in, this, in these verses, they, they have an end, even though these things were, were about to come to pass. And um, <laughs> I, 
we saw, we see, um, let me just point this out. In light of all of that, one of the things that I want us to realize in our own life is, is that when we consider the trials that the disciples were about to face, that Jesus was preparing them for, and the trials that we face in our own lives, the thing that I, I want you to note as we, we kind of go through this chapter is that um, we know that trials are going to come but Jesus knows that we're going to make it to the other side. And, 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 and as Jesus was preparing his disciples for the trial, he was also preparing them for what would be on the other side. He knew they were, that they would make it. And lots of times in the midst of the trials that we are facing, it doesn't feel like we're going to make it. It feels like the, 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 the refining, the 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 burning that we're in, the consuming that, that's going on in our lives for whatever we're going through, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like we're often going to make it. And so Jesus was telling disciples, you know, the trial is coming, and you're going to make it to the other side. And, and that's true for us this morning, whether you have a trial with health, a trial with uh, one of your children, maybe it's a, a marital thing, a financial thing, maybe even it's a spiritual thing where, where you're in a lot of a, a place of uncertainty in your own life, is, is the Lord knows. And he's been preparing you beforehand for now. And not only has he been preparing you for, beforehand for the trial, but so that you will make it through the trial and be even stronger on the other side. And, 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 and Jesus leads us like he was leading his disciples. And we see that even in the midst of it, in the midst of it, remember, they're, they're um, in the upper room. Right? And, and Jesus, Judas is, is, is like already made the deal to betray Jesus. And, and he's in the midst. He knew when he reached Jerusalem that he would be in the midst of the trial, but his disciples would be in the midst of it as well. Many misplaced hopes, many misplaced expectations about what was going to happen when they reached Jerusalem. And they thought, because they, we see that they were even arguing at the end of the, the verses that we read last week, about who was going to be the greatest when Jesus came into power. And we, and we remember Jesus got down on his, on his knees and began to wash his disciples' feet at that moment, at that time, to show them that true greatness in the kingdom of God came through humility, came through serving. And, and, so, and so in all of this, as Jesus was leading them and caring for them, he knew that things were not going to be as they expected. And so the trial that he was going through was a trial that they were going to go through too. And even though he was at this time of great suffering, both emotionally and looking forward to what was coming physically, is that he was caring for his disciples. And, and Jesus, not only does he prepare us, but he leads us and cares for us in the midst of the trial. And what you're going through right now, whatever it is, you're not alone. The Lord's caring for you. He's providing for you. And you may not even see it in the moment. And through this, we saw Jesus' leadership and, and really his care for his disciples in the first 30 verses of this chapter where he, he sat down in the midst of this to share this last Passover supper with them, to have koinonia fellowship with them. 
to, to eat the bread and to drink the wine, but also to use that as an opportunity to, to, to take this and, and move it forward into this new covenant that we've become part of and saying, listen, this is going to be done in remembrance of me, where my body will be broken, where my blood will be spilt for you. And he established this new covenant with them and with us in grace through faith. And again, Jesus walking with them, teaching them, growing them, pointing them forward. And in addition to this, like I already mentioned, Jesus had knelt down as he was leading for them and caring for them. He knelt down before each of them to wash their feet and gave them this really graphic picture of of how to humbly serve each other. And then, and then he revealed that his betrayer was one of them. He didn't reveal who it was, but he revealed to them that it was one of them. And we know that after Judas had left the upper room, that Jesus in verse 31 said this to his disciples. Okay, all this picture being played out, everything being set on the stage, and then Jesus says this to the remaining 11. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. And in case you don't know what that picture looks like, we don't sift wheat here when we process it today, but if you get all the grain and all the wheat when you harvest it together, they would put it in a, in a basket and they would toss it up in the air, and as the wind would blow, it would blow away the chaff and leave the good. Well, in saying this to his disciples, Jesus was saying, listen, Satan's wanting to put you in the basket, throw you up in the air, and like the chaff of the wheat, he wants to sift you so that, the, 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 that you're blown away like the chaff. And, and Satan had evil intended at this moment, at this time, not only for the Lord Jesus Christ, but for his disciples, for these apostles. And Jesus was warning them. He was preparing them with this knowledge for what was coming. Not only that, Jesus said to him, but don't worry, right? I'm going to pray for you, and we're going to get to that as well. And even though Jesus, look, even though Jesus, I want to point this out here, had said Simon's name, when, when he had said this, Simon Peter's name, it appears that Jesus was also really directly addressing, addressing all 11 of the apostles who were still there because the word you in verse 31, translated from the Greek word is the word humas, and it's in the plural. He was saying, Simon, Simon, speaking to Simon as, as if he was speaking, directing, speaking to all, but he was bringing it in through Simon. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you, for you guys, that he may sift you as wheat. And when Jesus said that Satan desired to sift them as wheat, you know what? It, I put myself in that situation. Everything that I had just gone through, everything that Jesus had said, there's a betrayer, all of these things. You know what it would have done? It would have made my hair stand up on the back of my neck. Listen, Satan's, Satan wants to get you. <laughs> I'd be like, ugh. You know, and, 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 and certainly it had to send chills up and down their spines, I think. And we know that this news, at the very least, was unsettling to them because of Jesus' words in verse 32. What are they? Words of assurance. Why do you think Jesus assured them? Because they needed to be reassured in that moment. And he assured them that he was praying. Listen, he was praying that their faith would not fail that their faith would not fail. And what Jesus knew, I love this, that they did not know is that his, his fast approaching arrest and crucifixion would be this great testing of their faith, right? But what? listen, 
I love this because when we're going through trials, we can, we can, we can feel like Satan's sifting us and we're like the, the chaff of the wheat that's being blown away, like we're perishing. But listen, what Satan intended for evil, to crush them, to destroy them, you know what? God was working it for good. That's what we see here. Isn't that not what Scripture tells us? What, what the enemy intends for evil, God works to good for those who are called according to his purpose? And this trial and this testing of their faith would be like the sifting of the wheat as God was intending it for good because God is greater than Satan and where the good grain is left and separated from the worthless chaff, what we know is that only what is precious and only what is valuable will be left behind. And God says, I'm going to use what Satan intended for evil in the very same process, but what's going to remain is the wheat. The, the chaff, the worthless is going to be blown away, but what is good is going to remain. Now, as the disciples' faith was being tested, we know that all 11 of them would falter in their faith. I want to point that out. There's a difference between faith faltering and faith failing. Who here has faltered in faith? Yeah. It doesn't mean your faith has failed or your faith has failed you. When you falter in faith, to falter in faith is to be human. And their faith would falter, including Peter, who would openly deny Jesus three times as Jesus predicted. But their faith would not fail. Their faith would not fail, and these hard things that they were about to go through would refine and purify their faith, and the chaff, the worthless part of their faith, of their of which was their, listen, which was their misplaced and misguided ideas at this time, right? That needed to go away because Jesus wasn't going to set up his kingdom at this time. Their hopes of ruling and reigning by his side, right? It's one on the right and one on the left. And, 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 and these other things, these misguided ideas, hopes, and expectations that they still had is what would be separated and the truth and the good would remain. So you guys, I've said this before, when we all come to the Lord and, and give our lives to him, we come with baggage. We do. And, and what the Lord does for us is, in, 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 is, is he unpacks that stuff. He opens it up and he, he goes through it and it's like, you don't need that. And he starts throwing stuff and getting rid of it, figuratively speaking. He needs a clean slate to work with, but then what he does is he begins to repack, packing into our lives, building up what he needs, what, he, what we need, the truth, getting rid of the, the lies, the, 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 the things that the world puts in, getting rid of the, the things that, uh, the sin that has so easily ensnared us. The temptations that, that giving us victory over, over sin so that that temptation no longer um, leads us astray. All these things that God does, he unpacks it and repacks into our lives what is good and true and noble and praiseworthy. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, the gifts of the Spirit. All these things, the knowledge of him, this love that he pours into our lives so that it can be poured into the lives of others around us. That's what God packs in, but he's got to get rid of this stuff that we hang on to, that we come with when we come into this relationship. That's why we're often told in one of the places in the book of Colossians that we're told to put off and to put on. 
Put off these things, anger, math, malice, you know, and so on and so forth. And put on, the Bible says, Lord Jesus Christ. And the picture in, in that original language there is a literally like taking off your cloak or your coat and putting on Jesus. And, and lots of times people will say, well, if I do that, I'm a put on. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to be put. I don't want to be false. I don't want to be. I don't want to be false. I don't want to be fake. I don't want to be pretending. And and you know what the bottom line is is you're not when you realize and admit, confess who you really are, and that you are in need of Jesus. And Jesus is who I want in me and on me, and that's who I want living through me. And that's what God was doing here with these disciples through this process. He was separating so that the good would be left to remain. And knowing that they would remain faithful, listen, and knowing, Jesus, knowing even in this moment that they would remain faithful, even after faltering in faith, Jesus says this to them. He said that when it was all over, that they had, that, that, and when it was all over, and when they had returned to him, that they were then to strengthen the brethren. So right then and there, we know that Jesus knew that they were going to make it through it. Listen, guys, you're going you're gonna to stumble, you're going to fall, you're going to falter in faith. You're going to make it through to the other side. Good's going to come out of this. I'm going to pray for you to be strengthened in your faith, that your faith will not fail. And when you come back to me, he says, strengthen the brethren. Not if you come back, but when you come back. And I think it's obvious from Peter's response in verse 33, guys, we need to be careful of this in our own life. In verse 33, we see that Peter didn't believe that his faith would falter or that he would forsake Jesus, even though Jesus once again singled him out and said, Peter, you are going to deny me three times. And there's no doubt that Peter, think about this for just a second. And men, I think we have to be careful of this in this way. But Peter, he was a courageous man, Right? He was a courageous man who meant what he said, I think, when he declared at this moment in time that he was being truthfully honest with himself as he looked at himself, which is always a dangerous thing. But when he said, listen, Lord, I won't deny you. I will go to prison for you and even unto death. In fact, in Mark's gospel account, Peter also said this. He said, even if all of these, I imagine he turned around, because he probably beat her being in the front, right? He turned around and he said, even if all these guys, he's speaking of the John and, and James and the other 11, and I'm sure they're like, what are you talking about? But even if all of these, Lord, forsake you, speaking of the other apostles, even if all of these were made to stumble, he said, he would not. But what we know is Peter would stumble. And he would deny Jesus three times. And you know why? It's because of self-confidence. Looking at himself. The courage, the strength, the commitment that he had in this. And rather listening to what the Lord had said. And it was this confidence, this self-confidence that blinded Peter from being able to see this, the spiritual reality. And it was like going... You don't need to unpack my bags, Lord. I'm good. And God is all, there is some stuff in there that needs to come out. Self-confidence. And it blinded Peter from being able to see the spiritual reality and the spiritual battle that Jesus could see 
that his disciples, his apostles could not, and he was warning them of and preparing them for. And yet this self-confidence was something, it was some of the chaff that needed to be sifted out of Peter's life, right? That self-confidence, that self-reliance in order for him to become completely dependent and reliant upon God. Now, in regards to the trials, which are the tools the Bible teaches us, the tools by which God refines our faith, we should accept the fact that they are as necessary in our lives today as they were for the apostles back then, right? And the fact of the matter is nobody likes to go through these trials. The scripture is clear when it teaches us that we should rejoice, that we should, as the Bible says, count it all joy. When we encounter various trials, why? Because God's doing a great work in us and through them. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, we're told this saying, I know you know this, but I want, to hear, want you to hear it in context. It says this in verse 6, in this 1 Peter, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, yes, and it needs to be, Right? If need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom you, whom you having not seen love. And because of this, we should remember that like the apostles who were instructed by Jesus to quote-unquote strengthen their brethren after the trial was over, we guys have been instructed to do the same. In fact, and listen, in Second Corinthians, I love this, chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, it says this, listen, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we are comforted by God. And, and literally, that's exactly what we're doing vicariously through what the disciples were going through here as we see how Jesus was leading them, caring for them, preparing them, comforting them, and going, man, God did that for them, and he'll do that for us. But even more intimately, as we go through them ourselves and we experience that same leading and comforting and, 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 and preparation as we go through the trial, and our faith is refined, and when we get to the other side of it, we can go to others who are going through it and going, listen, this is what the Lord's done for me. This is how he spoke to me. This is how he worked it out for me. This is the work that he did in me and why it needed to be. And we can come along others who are hurting and suffering and, and, and going through a trial that we can comfort them with the same comfort with which we've been also comforted. What are we doing in there? The same thing Jesus said to his disciples. He said that you'll strengthen the brethren. There's a purpose in it. Not only working in us, as we've talked about, but it's a working through us. And God wants to work through us just like he wanted to work through his disciples. And we know that when they came out on the other side of it, man, there was some power going on as the Holy Spirit filled them. And, and they spoke the truth. When their misplaced hopes and ideas about what was going to happen became replaced with the truth of what did happen and, who, and, and what Christ had come to do, it says, it says so much so that this small group of guys that seem like it's just going to all fall apart right here, right? It's like, man, what hope is there with these guys? 
Peter's going to deny him three times, and he's turning on the other 11. They're all going to forsake you, but I'm not, and we know what happens when it goes on. But these, these men and the other followers of Jesus, that after the day of Pentecost, were told that they were such a force that they turned the, says, says they turned the whole world upside down. And if God could do that then, he still wants to do that now. The promises still remain. Before we move on, it's important to point out that Jesus knew his disciples would falter in their faith, but this did not affect, I love this, it did not affect his faithfulness to them. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, like, I look around, I'm like, mm, I don't know about that one, God. And God doesn't do that. And sometimes we think that's how God does that about us. When we falter in our faith, we think that his faithfulness to us is like a conditional thing. And we look at this and we go, Lord, you could easily have picked more faithful men. Judas, why'd you choose Judas? You knew, he knew. And Judas failed in faith, but these guys, even they faltered in faith, it did not affect his faithfulness to them. In fact, in Mark's gospel, after Jesus told them that they would be scattered, he promised this. He promised to still meet with them after his resurrection in Galilee. In other words, even after they had forsook him and they all would flee, that he said, I'll come to you. Wow. Forsook him, fled for him, and Jesus, don't worry. When I come back, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come after you. Like the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one. And this is important because it once again illustrates this, God's grace. It illustrates God's grace and the fact that his faithfulness to us is not diminished even when we're faithless. This is important to remember because when our faith is tested, Listen, when our faith is tested by the trials of life, there are times when we falter and are faithless. It's true. We doubt, we worry, we do all these things. We maybe even take action upon those worries and, and those doubts, and we go and do something on our own strength, like Peter, who we read about, will even like cut off the ear of, of, of the high priest's servant. You know, we do dumb things like that. <laughs> we rush out. But God's faithless and or faithful, and in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, it assures us of this saying, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. He can't deny who he is. And faithfulness to us is who he faithful, faithfulness is, 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 is this inerrant attribute of who God is, of who Jesus is. And so as we read on, if you look at verse 35 there, in verse 35 we see that Jesus was still speaking to his disciples and he, what he was doing is he was reminding them of the time that was, that's recorded for us back in Luke chapter 9, the time when he had sent them out previously to preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. And at that time they were sent out without provision, remember, and they were all amazed at what God did and how they lacked nothing. However, Jesus' reference to this past event was given now, he was drawing their mind back to that to build a contrast for, for how it had been to a time when they were received by many, but now it was not going to be that way. Jesus was saying, listen, it was like that for a time, for a season, but now things have changed. It's going to be different. And in fact, this was the time that Jesus had been preparing them for when they would be hated by many. 
a time when they would be hated by all for his namesake. And to confirm this, Jesus then quoted uh, from Isaiah 53, verse 12, in verse 37, to show them that he would be treated like a criminal, numbered among the transgressors, and that people would treat them who chose to follow after him in the same ways. So because the disciples were facing a new set of circumstances, he was telling them that they needed to have this new outlook and Jesus instructed them because of this to now take a money bag, to, to, to take a knapsack, and to sell their garments, and to buy a sword, and to prepare for the, the dangers that, that they would be facing. And listen, I just want to boil it all down to this. People get really weird with this passage of Scripture, by the way. And so I just want to boil it down. You know, we've always heard it said, teach God's Word simply and simply teach God's Word. And, and so with that, I want to point out the intent of what Jesus was was instructing in that at this time, it seems to be on the fact that he was leaving him, and because he was leaving them, that they must use some common sense. In, in regards for their provision and for their perfect, per, protection. And man, I think common sense goes a long ways. <laughs> And, and these kinds of practical considerations were, were not needed before, but they were needed now for the things concerning him were coming to, he says, an end. Coming to an end. And even though Jesus was concerned about the practical things for his disciples, who would be left to live in the temporal after he had departed from it. Don't you love that? I love, that's what Jesus is really, he's going to talk about some spiritual stuff, but he's going, okay guys, there's some practical things that you're going to need to be be, be concerned about, and I'm concerned about them for you, so listen, use some common sense when I'm gone. And, and, and that's kind of the underlying message. There's more to it, and I don't want to get into it all this morning, but, but if you get that part and you then can unpack it from there, you'll be doing good. And, 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 and he was giving them this, this instruction for the, for the temporal, but we'll see that there was this greater instruction <clears throat> for their preparation that Jesus would also give them that spoke to the to the spiritual which spoke to the eternal and it would be given it wouldn't be given to Jesus until they reached the mount of uh, to the to um, the garden of Gethsemane there at the mount of olives and we'll read about that here in just a few minutes and this is why Jesus responded in verse 38 saying these words it is enough at the end of this section, or more specifically, what he was really saying here when you break it down, he said, enough of this talk. And, and that's when they came to him and, and presented him with, with two swords. And it's like, okay, Jesus, we got these two. And he's all, okay, enough of this. The, 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 this is, a, this is a, a necessary conversation, but it doesn't need to be the focus of everything that's going on here. And Jesus then Go to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of the Simeons, and you talk about the spiritual, and you can talk about the eternal, the greater things of instruction. And so in verse 39, it says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as, as, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the, to the place, he said to them, Pray, okay, listen, pray, why? That you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn for them, about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared from him from heaven, strengthening him, and, and being in agony, 
He prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great droplets of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer, he had come to his disciples and he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Again, the same instruction, the greater instruction of preparation. In verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to, to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and elders who had come to him, I love this, he said, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. If you've been to Israel, or if you've ever studied it out, you know that in Israel that the Mount of Olives is just a little ways on the outside of the old city of Jerusalem. And um, after exiting the Golden Gate, it would not have taken long for Jesus and his apostles to walk there. And uh, even though these verses don't tell us exactly where these events took place, we know from the other gospel accounts that specifically in regards to the Mount of Olives, which is a a large place, but Jesus and his disciples went to, it says, the garden called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane is cool. You can still visit it there today. It's located on the east side of the old city of Jerusalem. It's separated by the Kidron Valley. And currently, the Garden of Gethsemane is enclosed with a wall that was built by the Franciscans in 1848, and it contains olive trees, they say, that date back to the 7th century A.D., and they're pretty, they're pretty awesome to see. <clears throat> the word Gethsemane, not by coincidence, but the word Gethsemane means oil press, and more than likely, it was a place where um, um, the, the harvested olives were taken and then crushed into an, in, in, in an oil press to extract their oil. And like I said, it's, I don't think it's by coincidence that Gethsemane, this place of crushing, is where Jesus began his intense suffering that he would endure on our behalf. And in verse 40, we're told that when Jesus' disciples, when Jesus and his disciples came to this place, he instructed them. Okay, he's preparing them still. He instructed them to pray that they may not enter into temptation. And then Jesus, it says, went a short distance from them. Luke, giving this orderly account, says that it was about a stone's throw, according to verse 41. And then Jesus himself knelt down and prayed. And as Jesus prayed, it was clear that he knew what was waiting for him, right? And he knew that he would soon be arrested, and he knew of the great physical pain that he would endure upon the cross and shortly after his arrest. But he also knew of the greatest suffering, I think, and the pain that would come when he who had never sinned, he who who was sinless, would take upon himself our sins, the sins of the world. He would know of that suffering because of this God 
it said, would turn his face upon away from his son, that all the wrath that we deserve would be poured out upon him. And this knowledge of the forsaking that would result of that as the father would forsake the son, I think this is why Jesus was in such great agony and prayed, it says, even all the more earnestly until his sweat became like drops of of, of blood falling to the ground. And during this time Jesus prayed, we see that he asked not only, only once, as we read here, but three different times from all the other gospel accounts we can see, three other times for this, in total, for this cup of suffering to be, be taken away from him. Yet because we know that there was no other way for us to be saved, and because of his great love for us, Jesus submitted himself to his heavenly Father's plan. And even though he was not saved from death, we know that he was saved out of death. And that's the same hope that we have. We're not saved from this death, not all of us, but we're saved out of it. And was through his resurrection back to life three days later. And I want to point out that the writer of Hebrews, I love this, the writer of Hebrews recounts or recalls this event in Gethsemane. He says in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect or shown to be perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to those who obey him. And before Jesus withdrew, he had instructed his apostles to pray so that they may not enter into temptation. And this is key. And from Mark's gospel account, we know that they were also warned to watch Jesus, or to watch as Jesus said to them that the Spirit, Mark's gospel account tells us this, at this time time Jesus said this, the Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray so that you may not enter into temptation. Why? Because the Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. However, the apostles, they did not heed this instruction or this warning. And when Judas came to betray Jesus with a kiss, we see that they were caught off guard. They weren't prepared. And even though this was a time that they had been prepared for, they weren't prepared. Sadly, the ungodly actions that resulted, I think, were twofold. The first is recorded in verse 15, where we read that one of them reacted without even Jesus' instruction, and he cut off the high priest's servant's ear. Also in Mark chapter 14, verse 50, we're told that, is, that the other result of the apostles' spiritual, get this, the other result of their spiritual unpreparedness as a result of not praying was that all of them forsook Jesus and fled at this moment. And the bottom line is, is because they all fell asleep, because they did not yield themselves through prayer to the Spirit, and being watchful, they were overtaken when the trial and the temptation came. And the point is, is the same warning to watch and pray that was given to the disciples is given to all of us who follow after Jesus so that we might be prepared for the life that we've been called to live, that we might be prepared for the trials that we are going to face so that we might stand and not give way to temptation. And the truth is, is we all face the same struggle to seek after and to be mindful of the eternal things of God, even though our spirit is willing. Why? Because our flesh is weak. 
And this is why we might put off, as I said earlier, put off the flesh, which is weak, and wake up and put on the things of God. Listen to what Romans chapter 13 says, verses 11 through 14. It says, and do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to wake up out of our sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or in drunkenness, not in lewdness, not in lust, not in strife, not in envy. Those are the things that we're to put off. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Paul is also preparing us with these words. Listen, after the ear of the servant was cut off, Jesus performed his last miracle. It's mind-blowing, right? Regrowing an ear. His last miracle before going to the cross by healing the servant. By healing him in doing so, Jesus was practicing, I think, once again, what he had preached regarding his instructions there at the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, to love your enemies and to do good to those who hate you. What a graphic picture of this right here. Furthermore, Jesus gave us another example, I think, of what it truly means to love and to forgive. And this is because this man, this man had no good intentions towards Jesus. Yet he was good, yet Jesus, Jesus was good to him, even though he did not deserve it. Think about that. Even though this man had no good intentions towards Jesus, Jesus was good to him, even though he did not deserve it. And in light of that, the Apostle Paul writes to us, the church, in the book of Ephesians, and he says this please listen. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking. Once again, let that be put away from you. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. And in verse 54, as we read on, it says, And having arrested him, they led him and brought him to the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked at him intently and said, This man was also with him. But Peter denied. Peter denied him, saying, Woman, I don't know him. I don't know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you, are of, you, are also, you also are of him. But Peter said, man, I am not. And then after about an hour had passed, another, confident, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow was also, also with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately when he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And listen, this is probably the most, one of the most powerful script, pieces of Scripture for me in, in all the Bible. And it says, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter in that moment. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. 
And Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so Peter went out and wept bitterly. I want to say it before we even get to it. The look that the Lord gave to Peter guaranteed this. It wasn't a look of disappointment. It wasn't a look of condemnation. It was a look of love. Did Peter feel disappointed? Certainly. Did Peter feel condemned? Probably from his own heart. But it didn't come from the Lord in this moment. It was a look of love, compassion, mercy, grace, tenderness, kindness. That's who our Savior is. And so they took Jesus, we're told, off of the Mount of Olives and back to Jerusalem under the cover of night to the high priest, to the scribes, and to the elders. And this group of rulers was known as the Sanhedrin. It was kind of like our Supreme Court. You've heard me say that before. You probably know this. However, at, most, at this time, most of the decisions that, that came out of this court had to be brought before and ratified by a Roman governor since Rome ruled over Israel at this time. Consequently, guys, listen, as a result of this, Jesus, and, and I think this was also part of God's intentional plan for what was going on here, showing Jesus to be without fault and without blemish, right? Sinless, not guilty. We know that he had to endure six different trials at this time before he was unjustly condemned to be crucified, three before the Jews and three before the Roman authorities. And when we consider all four of the gospel accounts, we see that Jesus was first, as I give you a timeline of these events, Jesus was first taken to Annas, who was the former high priest who had retained the title of, the title of high priest before the Jews. The Jews still regarded him as a high priest, even though Caiaphas uh, his son-in-law was the official high priest who had been, been appointed into that high priest position by, by, by Rome. So Annas was powerful, but he really had no legal authority. And according to Matthew chapter 26, verse 57, he then sent, he sent Jesus to Caiaphas, who mocked Jesus, blindfolded him, and beat him. Then at daybreak, as verse 66 points out, Jesus was tried for a third time by the Jews before the Sanhedrin council, found guilty, and condemned to death. But the Jews did not have the right to enact capital punishment. So they had to take Jesus to the Roman authorities to have him put to death. And determined to do so, they took Jesus to Pilate, who, who then, we know, he tried to avoid making a decision. A decision. And, and so he sent him to Herod, who also refused to condemn Jesus. And he sent him back to Pilate. But only when Pilate saw that he could not escape making the decision, he gave the Sanhedrin what they asked for and condemned Jesus to be put to death on a, Roman on a Roman cross. But listen, as we look at the timeline of events and bring it all together, what we're looking at, it was during the second trial with Caiaphas, the Jewish trial, the one before Caiaphas, that Peter denied Jesus three times while sitting in the courtyard by the fire. And for Peter, we see that this whole night had been a series of failures. You ever have one of those days, weeks, months, a series of failures? Yeah. Yet he had been so confident. He'd been so confident that even if all the others would forsake Jesus, he would not. And yet it was the self-confidence that, that caused Peter, listen, to not take the Lord's warnings seriously or the things that Jesus had even said about Peter, about who he was and what he would do at this point. And Peter's like, that's not me. Jesus is like, that's you. 
You know, God does that for all of us in a loving way. He says, look at you. Look at what, and he doesn't do that to go, you know what, you're, you're a mess. He looks at it, he tells us that and reveals it to us because he wants to do the work in us and through us and refine us and purify us and unpack what needs to be unpacked. And Peter did not take the Lord's warning seriously. Furthermore, Peter, like all the others, he had not watched, he had not prayed when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane. And even though Luke does not tell us who cut off the high priest's servant's ear, we all know, and we know from the other gospel accounts, it was who? It was Peter. Furthermore, it's like this. Get the scene. Peter's there. He's got his sword. He's all, yes, now's my time to shine. Everybody's going to forsake him, not me. Here they are. And he's all, Lord, should we, should we use our swords now? Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Peter, it's, it's not says here, but Peter said that in verse 49. Lord, should we strike with the sword? And then this. And then he reacted without even waiting for Jesus to answer. Lord, should I do this? And you're already off doing it. I imagine his sword was coming down. Lord, should I, should I strike him now? He reacted without, without waiting for Jesus to answer, and he attacked the high priest with the servants with his sword. And even though Peter, listen, even though Peter had courage and zeal, we see that he was totally unprepared for Satan's attacks. He was resting in the flesh, relying upon the flesh. And sadly, Peter, according to verse 61, did not realize, man, this is, this is so convicting. He did not even realize all that he had done until after the rooster had crowed. After the rooster had crowed for the third time, and when Jesus turned to look at Peter, is when Peter remembered all that Jesus had said to him. And at that moment, Peter was broken, and he went out, and he wept bitterly, Worship team wants to come up. I'm going to have to end here. Guys, in this place of brokenness, in this painful place of brokenness, listen, because we falter in faith. We, at times, don't even realize how bad we're blowing it until afterwards, sometimes. When the rooster, when our rooster crows for the third time, when, when we finally stop long enough to look up and, and, and get our eyes off of ourself and our circumstances and our situation, and we look up and we see the Lord looking at us with eyes of graciousness and mercy and kindness and tenderness and faithfulness to us, even in the midst of our faithlessness, we may not even realize it until that moment when we have to stop and look up. And in that place of painful brokenness for Peter and for us is where God began to build Peter up into a spiritually mighty man of God. And he does the same for us. And God will do the same for us if, listen, if we call out to him in our place of brokenness. How do we do that? first thing we got to realize is in this place of painful brokenness, when we're confronted with our sins, our faults, our failures, uh, our mistakes, 
not just the outward things, but when we look at that on the inward and go, man, look at what I really am like. I guarantee you Peter had some of that. It just wasn't what he had did. It was what he had did that revealed to him who he was when he thought he wasn't like one of them. One of them. <laughs> As for me, Lord, but I don't know. <laughs> Yet by the grace of God go I. And, and when God reveals, when he opens up your heart and shows you that place, don't be afraid. Don't let your own heart condemn you because the Lord doesn't condemn you. You see, in this place of brokenness, when we call out to him, what we have to do is we have to trust in his promises. When you return to me, because you're going to return to me, go and strengthen the brethren. Comfort those with the same comfort that you've been comforted with. You're going to make it through. I prepared you for this. What the enemy has intended for evil, I'm going to do good. All of these things, trusting in the promises and more importantly, believing in the work of the cross and the redemption that it brings to us. And that like Peter and the other apostles, and even in the midst of it, that God comes to us, comes after us. I will meet with you, Jesus said. Listen, I'm going to end with this. Psalm 51, verse 17. You guys want to stand? This is such an awesome passage of scripture. The sacrifices of God, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These things, O oh God, it says, you will not despise. Father, thank you, God, for your son Jesus. Thank you for the example of these men and the and just being so honest through your word with us so that we can understand that, that we're no different. But yet, Lord, the answers are the same. The hope is the same. The work that you've done for them, you've done for us. And you do for us. Lord, help us to not trust in our own strengths, but in you. Lord, help us to rely upon your Holy Spirit, who does a good work in us and through us. And Lord, we again humbly submit ourselves to you and confess, Lord, our need for you, and cry out for you to continue to do that work. Lord, you say that you're the author and the finisher of our faith, and that good work that you've begun in us, you will, you will see it through. You'll be faithful to complete it. But Lord, again, we confess our need to trust in you, to rely upon the cross and the redemption that it brings into our lives. And Lord, we, we leave this place this morning full of joy because of those truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.